Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Dr. Tamar Herman is a senior research fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute and a professor of political science at the Open University of Israel. Dr. Herman, welcome to Babel. Hi, how are you? You've been analyzing Israeli polling data for decades, and I'm struck that in contrast to other liberal democracies, an increasing percentage of Israeli Jewish youth describe themselves as right-wing. In one poll of young Israeli Jews from last year, right-wingers outnumbered left-wingers more than five to one. First of all, when people say they're right-wing in Israel, what are they talking about? Oh, that's an excellent question, because was I being asked this question in the 90s, I would have said to you, well, left and right, it's very simple. Left are those who are ready to make territorial concessions vis-a-vis the Palestinians, and on the right are these people who out of... Uh, religious convictions or security arguments are less willing or totally unwilling to make territorial compromises and would like to keep the occupied territories occupied. This is not the case anymore. What we have now in Israel is quite similar to what you're having in the United States with the difference between Democrats and Republicans. It has to do with a much wider and richer list of issues that these two political camps differ from each other. And it has to do with LGTB rights, women rights, state and religion. And on top of this, also the issue of the Israeli-Palestinian with a special emphasis on the domestic relations between Jews and Arabs within Israel, within the Green Line. In the past, it was Israelis and Palestinians in the occupied territories. Now, particularly after what happened in May 2021 with the clashes all over Israel, but in particular in mixed cities, the issue of who is the owner of this country, of this state, actually. And what you're describing, what the polls describe, is that the overwhelming number of Israeli Jews have exclusivist attitudes toward a lot of these issues, that the legislation in Israel that says Israel has to be a Jewish state, that that is increasingly important to young Israelis. And I presume that calls into question what the future role of Arab Israelis is inside of a Jewish state. Do young people talk about that or is it pushed off? Because surely they'll have to live with the consequences of it. So only in 92, it was put black and white that this state is Jewish and democratic as the formal definition of the state. In the nation state law of 2018, actually it was stated quite clearly that this is the nation state of the Jewish people and the Jewish people only. So this in a way undermined the second part of the hyphenated definition of the state as a democratic state, right? Some of the leaders of the Arab minority said that 
it's good that for the first time ever it's written black and on white and people from outside of Israel can understand really the situation. Now for the Israeli Jews and the young people in particular, you have to take into consideration two points. The first one is that because of the different birth rate of the ultra-Orthodox, the Orthodox, and what we call the traditional religious, they have many more kids. So technically, you have more young people among these three groups, which I mentioned first. And these groups are mostly almost totally located on the political right. In other words, it is not that people from the left changed their views and became right-wingers, but there are new voters and new people who take part in the political discourse, and they come from right-wing families, from right-wing communities. I'll give you the numbers. Amongst the ultra-Orthodox, the average number of kids per family is 6.8. Amongst the Orthodox or the National Orthodox, as we call them, it's 5.7 or 5.8. Amongst the secular, it's 2.9. So in a few years, actually, you have larger communities that are all on the right. And this is one of the explanations of why you have many young people who put themselves on the right. The other point that I wanted to make is that whereas the Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox do deal with politics in a way in the schooling system, the state schooling system was totally neutralized from politics. So the secular young people who go to the state education system or schooling system actually lack any understanding of the political system and they were not directed into any direction, left or right. And many of the families of secular people are more interested in other issues and they don't give their kids any political education. So when these young people are exposed, for example, to the realities in the army, in the occupied territories, they are fascinated by this kind of affinity, a sense of belonging to nationalistic, religious sense of community. And when they come back, for example, from their journey or after they serve in the army, where they meet people of of the right, they start thinking that they miss something. Something is missing in this secular way of life that is actually the absence of religion. So young people who are looking for something that is more tangible in their sense of belonging, rather than being living some kind of an atomized existence, uh, some of them are fascinated by that. And even if they do not fully convert into a right-wing agenda, they find it easier to swallow its softer versions. But it's interesting that when you talk about this sense of belonging, Israel's founding myth is all about the kibbutzim, collective living, group ownership, sort of utopian Marxism. 
And as Israel moved away from that, the left didn't seem to replace it with anything. And the right did have something. What did the right have? And when did the right start to fill that space? What did they fill that space with? Since 77, when Likud took over, actually what we saw was the replacement of the political elites. We didn't see a replacement of the academic elites, of the business elites, till you have the grandchildren or grand-grandchildren of the people who established the kibbutzim and left the kibbutzim. And here we should touch upon an issue that we didn't touch thus far, and this is the Ashkenazi, non-Ashkenazi rift in Israel. When I was young, talking about your ethnic origin or someone else's ethnic origin or to ask someone about that, it was not common because we thought ourselves as being Israelis, quote unquote, without this ethnic aspect to it. But it was just below the surface. To a great extent, under the influence of identity politics, of American identity politics, and the non-Ashkenazi parts of the Israeli Jewish society started to develop a sense of identity, but also deprivation and the demands to be compensated for being pushed outside or for their identity to be erased by the uh, old Zionist Ashkenazi establishment. They couldn't find themselves in parties uh, belong to these old elites like labor or merits. And we hardly have any, any center parties until very recently. So their only option was to find themselves in Likud, which is the main right wing party. As of today, it seems more, I would say, moderate. But in the past, it was not considered moderate. It was considered as the bastion of those who would have likened to see the old elites being toppled from their power positions in Israeli society. So younger people of non-Ashkenazi origin are actually more at ease on the right because of the legacy of the deprivation that their parents' generation or their grandparents' generations have suffered. So even people with some very strong social beliefs and sentiments, they find themselves on the right, although content-wise they should have found themselves on the left, but they can't find themselves there because they feel that this is the wrong place for them because of the historical suffering and the historical evil that was done to them. What you're describing is a politics of grievance that has taken root not only among people who suffer direct discrimination, but even the children and grandchildren of people who suffer discrimination. And now that grievance seems to be a principal driver of where they fit onto the Israeli political spectrum. You are absolutely right. So let me ask another question of grievance, because as I recall, the peace process period of the 1990s, there was a strong sense that if Israelis felt more security, then Israelis would be willing to take risks for peace. They believed that peace was actually an alternative. The 
kids now who are increasingly right-wing did not grow up in the first intifada or the second intifada. They were born after these events. They have significantly more security. They live in significantly less fear of bombings in, in public areas and things like that. How should we understand the impact of that on young Israelis' interest, willingness to pursue a negotiated peace with Palestinians? Indeed, these young people have not gone through some very devastating experiences like the Second Intifada. However, they do serve in the occupied territories. Many of them live in settlements beyond the Green Line. Those living beyond the Green Line certainly do have some kind of interaction with Palestinians, for better and for worse. When you do interviews with young people who grew in the settlements, they say, we know Palestinians, they are neighbors, but they don't trust them. They see them as a combination of neighbors that you cannot really rely on because you don't know when they will turn against you. So it's a very complicated uh, situation. And, And the second and third generation of the settlers They see themselves already as natives of the West Bank. They see themselves as equivalent in this respect to the young Palestinians. They say, why do they have the right over this part of the land? We live here. We are born here. Even our parents were born here. So it is very, very different than the first generation of settlers who came there in order to in a way, quote-unquote, conquer the land or take over the land. Second, young people are incapable of drawing the green line. They have no idea where the green line is because in the maps, in the in the textbooks which they study and the maps that are in the classrooms, the green line is, doesn't appear. That is the 1967 borders of Israel. Yeah, they don't know where the West Bank start and Israel ends and vice versa. We once did a kind of a quiz and we gave people a list of names of towns, cities, villages, and we asked them to say which one is uh, in the territories and which one in Israel. They couldn't say. Secular people never go there. They don't see Palestinians. They never meet Palestinians. But the overall perception, and these elections, I think, emphasize the Israeli-Palestinian conflict doesn't exist now in the Israeli political discourse. I mean, not even one party mentioned the conflict as one of the issues that it would deal with if they get elected. No party put any blueprint of a future peace negotiation. So when we ask people, what are the issues that the new government should deal with? If I give them four options, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict will be the fourth. If I'll give them five options, it will be the fifth. If I'll give them six, it will be the sixth. But to connect it to what we were talking about at the beginning, You said that when Israelis define themselves as right-wing, it has to do with the Jewish nature of the state and the role of Palestinians, that is, Arab Israelis, in the Jewish state. And it seems to me that what you're describing is, for most Israelis, the problem of Palestinians in the occupied territories is not an issue of any concern. And the Arabs that they're concerned with 
are the Arabs who live amongst them inside of Israel proper. And yet, we also see that this tremendous interest in normalization with the UAE and with other Arab countries. You were just in Dubai. I mean, how do we begin to reconcile all of that? It is complicated. I would say the Palestinians of the territories are out of sight to most Israeli Jews. They don't see them. They don't sympathize with them. Very few media outlets report about what's happening there. They do not have any image of the Palestinian. So you may live your entire life here and never have even the slightest or the shortest conversation with a, a Palestinian Palestinian. The Israeli Arabs for years were very careful not to openly identify with the Palestinian Palestinians. The Palestinian leadership was very careful to keep them afar from things like the Second Intifada. This changed in recent years. There is a correspondence between the sense of being deprived of their civil rights within Israel, which pushed them into associating themselves with the national struggle of the Palestinian people. So this makes the situation even more complicated because we cannot anymore say these are the Palestinian Palestinians, these are the Israeli Arabs. And then you come with the UAE new agreement and that confused Israelis even more because, okay, we know the Palestinians are enemies and then you go to Dubai or to other places, Bahrain, now in Qatar for the Mundial, 10,000 Israelis went there. And then you, you realize that you can have very good time with Arabs who cannot care less about what's happening with the Palestinians. Because at the beginning, people were hesitant. Because if you go to Egypt, the feeling is not very nice because people do treat you as at least partially hostile and an enemy. This is not the case in Dubai. You can have good time there without feeling that the Palestinian issue is there. And if you talk to citizens of Dubai, they are interested much more in the high-tech opportunities in Israel with commerce and other issues, and you don't feel threatened. So what do you do with Arabs that are friendly to you? I mean, psychologically, it's very problematic. Because we know that you should feel on your tiptoes when you, you meet Arabs, because who knows what would happen. And then you go and have a wonderful vacation in Dubai. So the situation is absolutely crazy in terms of the ability to create a, a coherent attitude. So people are saying we live in a bad neighborhood and we should in Rome behave like the Romans do. We should adopt the code of, of behavior of the Middle East. And on the right, you have people who are saying that openly. And one of the things I found striking is changing Israeli attitudes toward the importance of democracy in Israel, especially when compared to other priorities that Israelis are trying to uphold. Could you describe what's happening on the issue of how Israelis think about the priority of democracy among other priorities? On the theoretical level, when you ask Israelis what's the best regime style that you would like to have in Israel, 98% will say democracy, 
and the two other percent would say a theocracy. But most Israelis would say, yes, freedom of speech, freedom of association, religious freedoms, and you name it. But when you translate these values into concrete questions, like you think that Jews and non-Jews should have equal rights in the state of Israel, we see a tremendous increase in the number of those saying, no, Jews have to have more rights than non-Jewish people. We intentionally did not put Arabs there. We just said non-Jewish. And still in our latest poll, we got 49%, half of our respondents who said Jews should have extra rights in Israel. And they don't see any, any contradiction between this statement and the value of equality in a democracy as a democracy. I'll go back to what I said earlier, that no one in the state schooling system is actually scratching the theoretical external layer in order to explain what this entails for a state that pretends to be democratic, that you cannot hold the stick in, in both sides and say, we want extra rights for Jews and we would like to stay democratic. Okay, so these contradictions are not being dealt with. And this is why younger people simply give up on the, on the practical level on issues that contradict with what they agree to on the theoretical level. So among young Israelis who think about Israel's place in the world, is there any sense that in countries like Western Europe, countries in North America, to have what you've described sort of as almost two permanent underclasses, one being Arab citizens of Israel and then a class below that being Arabs in the West Bank and, and Gaza. Is there any sense that you can't span the sort of being in the community of Western style democracies and having three tiers of rights? I mean, do people talk about that or is that not part of the public discussion? There is a song that is being sung in kindergartens in Israel, and the song says, the entire world is against us, never mind, we should overcome. So when you ask Israelis, what do you think will be the results of these developments in Israeli politics in terms of our standing in the international community? So they'll say, well, tough. We have experienced the Holocaust and the international community didn't do much for us. They've lost their moral right to criticize us. What did they do in Syria when uh, President Assad actually slaughtered hundreds of thousands of his own citizens? We didn't see this being denounced by the entire world. What do they do about things that happen here and there? They are using a different yardstick to measure Israel compared to what they do to other countries that are not acting fully by the democratic values. So this is one answer. And this has been uh, developed quite successfully by Netanyahu and his disciples throughout the years. I mean, people have heard it again and again and again 
this is the easy way out, right? I mean, we've been persecuted. They are against us from day one, from the biblical times, and we shouldn't take it too seriously. And here comes what actually the Western world is doing. It is criticizing Israel, but doesn't do actually anything in order to prevent these tendencies from developing. So actually, the criticism stays in the air. People do not feel any inconvenience because of that. We go everywhere. Israeli tourists you can find everywhere. We don't feel that we are being ostracized. Unlike, for example, South Africa during apartheid, when South Africans who traveled places they felt that they were treated badly because of, of the regime in the homeland. This is not the case with the Israelis. If they are being treated badly, that's because of their bad manners, not because of what is happening in the West Bank. So let me ask a final question, and that is, we started off talking about young people, and young people in the United States are drifting steadily leftward. In fact, many are going pretty left, and, and we have this group, the squad in Congress of, of very left-leaning members of Congress who are very critical of Israel. Israel, meanwhile, we have drifting rightward. In your view, does that reach an inflection point? Does that create a break? Or do you think, as somebody who's been looking at polling for a long time, that these trends move back and forth, and while they're currently moving in opposite directions, that they, as somebody who understands both societies, you think that there are many opportunities for them to reconvene in the center? Well, I usually don't make prophecies about the future, so we don't know whether these trajectories will last to the point where the break is unavoidable. We don't know who is going to take the elections in the United States in 2024. And you still have 82 million evangelical Americans, and they lend their support heavily to Israel and to the West Bankers. So it depends who do you listen to and who will be in control of decisions. Because although I love surveys and I do surveys, I'm skeptical to which extent public opinion is actually the reason why a state behaves this way or another way. And we saw it uh, when it was uh, the Obama administration and then the Trump administration and the, the situation totally changed. So I'm not sure that this is moving in the direction of a total divorce. And who knows what will happen in the region? I mean, regional developments may also influence Americans' policy in the Middle East. And for years, Israel was, if not the best ally of the United States vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Who knows what will happen? So I would take a very cautious position. It's all about leadership, I think, that will give us the answer, where are we heading on this issue? Damar Herman, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you for having me.
I'd like us to pick up where Dr. Herman left off there on the relationship between public opinion and foreign policy. On what sorts of issues does public opinion not matter? And on what does it matter? When does that change? I think it depends on the country. It depends on the issue. It feels to me like there's generally strong U.S. public opinion in favor of Israel, for example. And that has been an undercurrent to strong U.S. support for Israel through Democratic or Republican administrations. I think we've frankly seen strong public opposition to long-term engagement in unending wars in the Middle East, and that's helped undermine what U.S. governments have been willing to do with regard to Syria, for example. I think there are certainly times when, when governments are willing to do things that are unpopular, but it seems to me that what it really comes down to is, are you willing to spend political capital to do something? You've certainly seen administrations that have been willing to spend political capital to distance themselves from Israel? Are you going to, if, if U.S. opinion shifts, and certainly if the Democratic Party becomes more skeptical of Israel, I think it's worthwhile to ask, under what circumstances would U.S. administration use political capital with its own base to either stay closer to Israel or, or would, in fact, future U.S. administrations decide where the Democratic Party is, is further from Israel. I think that's, a, to me, something we have to keep an eye on, something Israelis are keeping an eye on. I mean, I think that this is very closely tied to how strong a democracy, a real democracy, really is. And this isn't just on foreign policy issues. This is on the issue of abortion. This is on the issue of gun control. You have the vast majority of Americans somewhat agreeing or falling along the same lines. As with Israel and Palestine, you have two-thirds for a long time, two-thirds of the American population doesn't want the U.S. government to side with either or. But the other third that does have a, an opinion about who we side with, it's very heavily leaning towards pro-Israel. That's beginning to change a little bit. But that pro-Israel component, they vote along those lines. They put pressure on politicians along those lines. They, you know, they fund, you know, campaigns and things like that. So, and you have the same thing that goes for gun control. You have the same thing that goes for abortion. You have, you know, a majority of the population that falls along a very sort of moderate line. But you always have that, you know, that critical component that's going to vote consistently. And they're going to go out every single time to vote on that particular issue. So I think that, you know, if we have something like gerrymandering or too many special interests in your democracy, public opinion, of course, is not going to matter as much. So I think that this is, you know, a matter of not just foreign policy, but I think all of our policies. The other thing is just how elections work out. And there, there are aspects of the structure that end up being significant, as a lot of people in Israel pointed out. The last elections in Israel basically divided evenly between a pro and anti-Netanyahu faction. But because the Netanyahu faction was very efficient and turned all of its votes into seats in the Knesset, and the anti-Netanyahu faction was inefficient, and there were a number of anti-Netanyahu parties that didn't clear the threshold to get in the Knesset, the pro-Netanyahu faction with 64 seats, a comfortable majority, where Netanyahu ends up being on the left side of his coalition, 
and you have what turns out to be an unprecedentedly right-wing coalition in Israel, despite the fact that the Israeli voting public is not unprecedentedly right-wing at all. The Israeli voting public is more in a centrist view, but as I think the interview highlighted, centrist in Israel is not what centrist in the United States looks like. But I would argue Netanyahu is a centrist, and as a centrist, he is on the left side of his coalition. So there are a lot of ways in which electoral democracies create governing realities that don't reflect the, the political realities in the country. The question then is, do you have things like the 2022 election in the United States, which is widely being interpreted as enough independents and Republicans turned away from a pro-Donald Trump orientation to move the party because they felt that Donald Trump had moved the party too far in one direction. That's arguably the way democracies correct themselves. But whether this actually works and how it works and how quickly and efficiently it works is all to be seen in the coming years. If we zoom in on a foreign policy example, John, you mentioned U.S. policy in Syria. Natasha, you've looked very closely at U.S. policy in Syria. How do you think public opinion factored in there? I mean, I think arguably if the United States had wanted to intervene in Syria, they would have. And I think the Iraq war is a good example of how policymakers are able to shape public opinion if they really want to go to war. I think Syria was essentially a casualty of Libya. And you can say the same thing about, you know, Somalia, Rwanda. I mean, multiple different types of interventions or non-interventions that have happened. And, you know, I think that Rwanda was essentially a casualty of, of, you know, of intervention before it. And so that's, that's essentially where I think public opinion does fall in. I think that there's other aspects that, you know, overstretching American resources, for example. But I do think public opinion has a lot to do with that as well. And, you know, I think my experience, you know, through my professional career, you've seen enthusiasm for war, but enthusiasm for war is often very brief. Remember George H.W. Bush was a hero for going to war in Kuwait and then lost the next election. And I think, you know, this is part of the thing that leaders have to keep in mind is when you're talking about leading the country into war, quick, decisive wars are often popular for a while, but even quick, decisive wars are not able to accomplish all of the goals that people set out for them. And this idea that I think became common after 9-11, that the United States needs to be fighting everywhere all the time, maximally on every front, I think that's what the American public said, wait, what? We can't do that. And we're seeing the long-term costs of being willing to go to war without clear goals, without exit strategies, that the American public says, stop. And there's always tension with the Defense Department and the Pentagon that arguably wants to be ready to fight every war and never wants to fight one. So then how do we square something like the Abraham Accords, where the UAE government was essentially able to push forward an agreement irrespective of the people's views on it? I think what happens in countries like the UAE, like in Saudi Arabia, other authoritarian countries in the region, is governments are given tremendous 
leeway to decide foreign policy. I still remember being in a meeting with members of the Foreign Relations Committee of the Consultative Council in Saudi Arabia, what was described as their parliament. And whenever we asked the question about Saudi foreign policy, they said, you should ask the government. And we said, but you're the legislature. And they said, ask the government. So I think in authoritarian countries, one of the prerogatives of ruling is foreign policy, and it's not really questioned. Oftentimes, when I've spoken to governments in, in throughout the Middle East, they've talked, for example, about issues regarding Israel as, well, we can't do it because public opinion won't allow us. Public opinion won't allow us. And even in the UAE, our public opinion won't allow us, you know, in, in the old days when Sheikh Zayed was around. What I think is remarkable is the Abraham Accords are a sign that governments, certainly governments that have, a reservoir, have built a reservoir of goodwill with their populations, do have leeway to shape foreign policy. And not only was there not a lot of criticism in the UAE, there wasn't a lot of criticism throughout the Arab world either. It was sort of muted, which suggests to me not only that governments can lead in foreign policy unconstrained, but governments also shape public opinion even more profoundly than I had appreciated, right? I mean, it's dangerous to speak out against a fellow Arab government in the Arab world. You can go to jail for it, against speaking out against another Arab government. And there's a way in which that infects the whole conversation. I think it's also an appreciation, though, I mean, on the Arab street, that Arab countries and governments had long been using the Palestinian cause, you know, in, on, on sort of a false basis, and that they had long betrayed the Palestinians. And so the Abraham Accords were just sort of the next step in that. And so not terribly shocking, I think, to many of them as well. So does that mean that there is a way in which public opinion affects policy differently in non-democratic states than it does in democratic states? Well, I think this goes back to the point that I made earlier about how you have maybe the majority of the public agreeing with a certain line of thinking that is perhaps more moderate. And really what you have sort of shaping politics is the things that make a country less democratic. So it doesn't have to be a completely authoritarian state. It doesn't have to be, you know, it could be a democracy as well. But it depends on how strong that democracy is and it depends on how strong that authoritarian regime is, right? So I think that in the case of, you know, Gulf countries, for example, they also are very wealthy countries, right? So they can afford to shift the public in ways that they might want to because essentially they are paying for their existence, you know, their education, everything. Now, an authoritarian regime that doesn't have that leeway might have to actually deal with public opinion a bit more. And I think the Arab Spring shows us what happens when they completely don't. So to a certain degree, you know, you do need to acknowledge your public's opinion about certain issues that very much affect them. But oftentimes foreign policy might not particularly affect them. I think I see it a little differently. I think the wealthy Gulf monarchies have built legitimacy with their populations because of where they've taken the country. And they think a lot about how to shape public opinion. They monitor it carefully. They try to influence it 
a lot. It's a very interactive process. They're thinking about how do they build political capital. And that's partly through shaping the public discourse. It's partly through constraining the public discourse. But I think they think about their political capital with the population a lot. With a democracy, there are so many more inputs to public opinion that I think governments can't shape the public discourse nearly as much. They don't shape what people talk about. They don't have censorship. They don't have all the sorts of tools. And it's not the government rewarding people for acting in positive ways. So it, it feels to me that democratic governments have to think about political capital differently. You can build it. You can try to encourage a discussion. You can try to shape it. But ultimately, I think democratic leaders, by the nature of a democratic society, have to be much more reactive. And authoritarian leaders are much more proactive because they have much greater ability to shape that environment. John and Natasha, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Danny. Danny. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.